I don't know if you guys know this, but today, according to the church calendar, is called Christ the King Sunday. Back in 1925, Pius XI, I believe, established this day, which is the last um, of the ordinary time schedule in the, the church's calendar, right before Advent kicks off, uh, proclaiming it to be Christ the King Sunday in order to refocus and reorient people's mindsets away from the secularism that was happening at that time. I think uh, that to view Jesus as king, it stands in contrast to this pervasive Christmas image in which we depict Jesus as an eight-pound, six-ounce newborn infant lying there in his ghost manger, just looking at his baby Einstein developmental videos, learning about shapes and colors. I also think, side note, it's also a bit different than wanting to view Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, I want to be formal, but... I'm here to party too. I think that's it's different as well. Um, viewing Jesus as king, especially in this time, is so important. Not just back in the 20s and the influence of secularism and those sorts of things, but in this time, like as we look towards the holiday season, I think that we can begin to see why it's important not just to see Jesus in a manger as a baby, but to see Jesus for the man that he became, for the life that he lived, for the, the kingship that, that he owns, that he received for us. In addition to that reorientation, I'm not just seeing Jesus in the manger like our dear friend Ricky Bobby would say, but seeing Jesus as king. An emphasis on this idea is important during this time for two reasons. Number one, the holidays remind many of us how Jesus has not been in control. To have this Sunday devoted to Jesus as king, for a lot of you as you sit here, that's not been true of your, of your story, of your life, the things that you've been through, even in the last year suffering, brokenness, difficulty, those sorts of moments in your life, those events that have shaped you to kind of push you to become one with severe doubts and skepticism and callousness and jadedness that's just built up in you where you don't think that Jesus is in control and you really don't think that Jesus is involved in your life. It's important for us to reorient our, our focus here. And if it's not true of our personal experiences, then we could also see the world around us that which seems to provide us with more evidence of that claim that Jesus is not in control. You think about even what's happened over the last month with uh, just natural disasters and war and the difficulties, politics, debt, things that are just so prevalent all around us. The fact that in America, I mean, homes are just broken. Statistically, more homes are suffer through divorce than, than not. In the school system, you just see the pain that's present in the lives of the students and just the things that they wear. And to claim Christ as king on this Sunday rings hollow for a lot of people. The second reason why I think it's important to, to think about Jesus as king is because the focus of the next few weeks is not necessarily a celebration of Jesus so much as it is a celebration of, or at least participation in, consumerism, selfishness, greed, and gluttony. The things that we have made our national holidays to become um, do not necessarily reflect not only that we're anticipating uh, a celebration of Jesus' birth, but we are celebrating Jesus in his life, his death, his resurrection, and what um, is available to us through that. It becomes 
oh gosh, I don't know what the kids are into these days. Game Boys, PS4s. <laughs> I'm sure there's a newer version of a Game Boy. But you know, like, even like, like us, I know for Kate and I, we just become so focused on getting that checklist out and getting all the presents that we need to get. And it's, it's a nightmare, more or less. It's just we're going around and we're totally not thinking of Christ in, in any capacity because we're so driven by this American ideology of get things for people that they hopefully like but probably won't use very long. It's important for us to, to come back to this idea of Jesus as king because of these two things. For one, for a lot of you, Jesus hasn't proven himself to be that. And for two, the way that we act as individuals doesn't demonstrate that. I think that we need to be reminded uh, that Jesus is king, first of all. And I think we also need to be reminded that this kingship doesn't always look like we expect it to. Dating as far back as Jesus' disciples, they all had this mindset and understanding of who the king was supposed to be, the kinds of things that he was supposed to do. And Jesus kind of subverted all of those things. I think for us, still as followers in the 21st century, he's still, in a sense, subverting that in our lives. The things that we expect him to do or want him to do or hope that he will do, he doesn't always do. The way that he goes about being king for a lot of us just doesn't seem right, perhaps. In Philippians chapter 2, we see Paul, he's writing this to us. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Or some translation would say something to be grasped. Here, you can see Paul is kind of subverting this idea of Jesus as God, but Jesus is the one who's emptying himself. He made himself nothing. He's taking on the very nature of a servant. He's being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Like the ideas and the images that people have of Jesus and what he should do, riding in on a white stallion with a sword raised in the air saying, I am the king. That's not what he did at all. From that idea of the eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant baby Jesus lying there in his ghost manger. I don't know what a ghost manger is, but you know, watching those videos, it's, that's not something that's kingly, right? Paul here is laying that out very explicitly saying this was Jesus's humiliation in a sense. The fact that he became like us, he emptied himself so that he could identify with who we are so that he could not only just sit off from afar and say, man, that really stinks that you have to go through that, but he can own it and identify with it no matter what it is that we go through. He's been there in a sense. The fact that he would do that on our behalf is so huge, but it doesn't stay there. It moves from humiliation to exaltation. In verse 9, it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Philippians chapter 2, it sets out this, this duality of humiliation into exaltation, which is not what most people thought Jesus would be about. They didn't think that it would involve this. So we see Jesus in this movement from humiliation to exaltation. We also see this similar theme in Isaiah 52 through 53. I don't have a lot of things to say to you tonight. Tonight's going to be very, very brief. But as we get ready to launch into this fourth servant song in Isaiah 52, 13 through the end of chapter 53, this same sort of movement from humiliation to exaltation is prevalent. You can see how it works. You can see how 
the conceptions of people are subverted and they go in a, in a completely different way. This is the text, and I just have three verses, uh, and we'll go through them quite quickly. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That sounds great, but the back story behind that is this. Just as there were many who were appalled by him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will, some translations say sprinkle. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Other translations would go with something like astonish or startle. So he would startle these nations by his appearance. His appearance is so ghastly that the nations would look at him and not really know what to do with it. Kings would shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. For the audience of Isaiah 40 through 55, which is the, the audience that we've been talking about for the last 23 weeks, this servant that they're talking about is Israel. This servant was Israel because Israel had been humiliated through the exile. Remember, way back in Genesis 12, God says, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a people, I'm going to make your name great, I'm going to make the whole world be blessed through you, Israel. But in the context where we find Israel, they're not blessing the world. They're not reaping the benefits of that relationship, that covenantal relationship with God. In fact, they're removed from the land. They're sitting around in brokenness and hurt and pain, wondering if God still cares about them at all. That is the epitome of humiliation. Seeing as though uh, this God that used to be invested in the lives of their great-grandparents is not invested in, in their lives anymore and wondering who it was that they were, they were called to be. So when Israel hears this servant song and thinks about this humiliation, their marred disfigurement that took over, like the fact that people were so startled by even what they looked like, they would kind of own that and say, yeah, that's us. But throughout this text, the poet keeps talking about hope and he's hinting towards their eventual exaltation, their return to the land, their restoration, the fact that God would show up and restore them to what they used to be, maybe even going beyond that, taking them from that difficult time, that time of suffering into something, something better. That's how the original audience would have heard this. For us, I think, especially for Christians that have spent a lot of time in the church, we don't necessarily read the text in the same way because as we think through that, someone who's marred beyond recognition, um, as, the, as the song continues on in chapter 53, we begin to see Jesus not seeing Israel at all. For us, we see the servant as Jesus himself, and he fulfills this suffering and humiliation and disfigurement through his resurrection or through his uh, crucifixion, excuse me, and through his resurrection and ascension, he is exalted. So we go from humiliation to exaltation in the person of Jesus. The gospel authors saw this. Everything was reoriented around this climactic event of death and resurrection, this movement from humiliation to exaltation. Everything in their minds centered around that. So that when they went back to read the Old Testament, they began to see Jesus Everywhere, Paul, same thing, begins to see Jesus all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. So as they looked at Isaiah 52 and 53, they said, that's a Jesus story. That's something that teaches us about Jesus. The early church saw this as well. It's almost like this last, and I'm sorry, I'm going to blow this for you if you haven't seen it yet. The last image of the show Lost is this. 
It's the same exact image as the very beginning of Lost, except the opposite. And this image kind of frames the whole way that you re-watch that series. For people that have been through and seen how it ends, you go back and you can't help but know that this is going to happen. And it completely alters how you view the show the second time around. When Christ dies and is resurrected, it completely alters how they go back and hear the stories of exodus and exile and restoration because all of those stories point to and are fulfilled in Jesus. I would argue the same should be true of us, even in our own lives, not just reading the Bible, but seeing Jesus all over the page of our lives and our stories. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I know for me, I get so lost in that consumerism, that busyness, that kind of got to get things off my checklist that it's rare to see Christ in all of those moments because I don't allow myself to see Christ in all those moments. So the, we have these two readings here. We have Israel as servant, according to one strain of uh, interpretation, namely a Jewish interpretation, and then Jesus as servant in the Christian interpretation. And for lots of uh, history, those two have been completely separated, so much so that a lot of Christians would almost take this and make this null and void altogether, as if the Old Testament or as if Israel was no longer important because Jesus supplants that. Jesus is the thing that matters and all this other thing doesn't matter anymore. I think it's better to kind of see these two things not as mutually exclusive, but to see them as something that's demonstrating a truth about God that's so beautiful that we still need today. God is doing something new. In the Old Testament, he's doing something new. With Isaiah's group, he's doing something new because they were in exile. And he says, wait a second, I know you guys have been disfigured. I know you've been marred. I know that your face doesn't look like it should, but there will be a time when you will be exalted. I'm going to take you from this shame and this difficulty and this suffering, and I'm going to make you, in a sense, beautiful. We see that in Christ as well, in his, in his life from the humiliation that he went through to the fact that he empties himself to become like us, to know what it looks like and feels like to be this, in a sense. But how after going through complete and utter suffering and agony in the events leading up to his death and then climaxing in his death, he, we also see him having something new happen in the resurrection. In our own lives, the same thing is true. It's not just a somewhere out there back then. It's for us as well. And some of you need to hear this message. God is doing something new for you, in you, around you. A lot of times we don't have the eyes to see that because, again, we're so built up with the jadedness and the callousness and we don't, we're not aware of it. Some of you have lived in those moments for three, four, five years and finally you're coming out of it and you say, I see it now. After years of hurt and brokenness, you begin to see that little glimmer of God doing something new. This movement from humiliation to exaltation seems to be happening. God works through suffering. That's a hard truth to swallow because nobody likes to suffer. Nobody looks forward to it. When we were going through Colossians, there was a text that talked about how we fill up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. We hear a lot of pastors talking about prosperity and how if you pray this, you'll get that. Or uh, I remember one guy said at one point, um, Jesus rode a colt that's never been rode. You should drive a car that's never been drove. And he rolled up in a BMW. I was like, yeah, that's pretty cool. I don't think that's biblical, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we have this these people that have kind of distorted the truth of, of what the gospel is, and the, the gospel is, I hate to say it, 
its solidarity with a Savior who suffered for us and we too suffer in some way, shape, and form for him. What that looks like for you varies. Some of you it's extreme. It's death. It's loss. It's brokenness. Some of you it's flunking out of a class, not getting into the school that you want to get to. It's, it's comparatively a bit minor in those things and everything in between. Some of you have been through ridiculous amounts of things and here I don't want to be that church guy, but I guess I kind of will be. He's working through that. I'm not saying that he's causing that necessarily, but he's using that to move you into a different place. We see that all throughout the pages of Scripture. God uses us as well. Some of you need to hear this because you don't own that for yourself. I tell this to my students about five times a week, which do the math, that's once a day. Some of them have so much potential, it's like oozing out of every pore of their body. They just, and they just sit on it. They do nothing because perhaps for some of them, the only thing that they've heard throughout their whole life is you're nothing, you're worthless, you can't help anybody, you're just dumb, you're this or that other thing. And they begin to own that and wear that as who they are. Or they become labeled as the bad kid or the rebel or whatever. And that's the label that they wear. And for a lot of us, we're there. But we begin to see in this story God using a broken, messed up people, especially when you think about that servant as Israel. They were a train wreck from top to bottom, but their job was to be a light to the nations. Their job was to reflect who God was to everyone around them. Our job as Christians is to reflect that same thing to everyone around us. I don't say that to guilt you. I say that to maybe inspire us as a group that he trusts us with that, that he wants that of us, that he maybe even expects that from us. God is not done with us. There's that movement from whatever this suffering is to exaltation. Perhaps for some of you, it's not going to happen until a long time from now. Perhaps for some of us, it's not going to happen until after we die. That's, that's depressing, but perhaps true. But he's not done with your story yet. God doesn't give up on us even when we give up on ourselves. Sometimes so much so that it's mildly annoying because you just want it to be done. You want it to be over. You want to move on to other things. But there's that still small voice that keeps saying, don't give up. Continue to trust. Fight for this. I'm not done with you yet. God knows and he understands. For Israel's scenario, he knew and he understood. For Jesus' scenario, he knew and he understood. And I would say for us as well, he knows where you are. He understands where you are. And for some of you, it's breaking his heart where you are. I don't mean that because you're being rebellious or sinful. That's not what I mean. I mean for some of you, you have real pain, real issues, real stuff that's happening. And instead of viewing the God in the sky as the one who's creating those scenarios, view him as the one who's weeping with you as you weep and waiting for the church to step up and to be his hands and feet and mend broken hearts. He knows and he understands. Embedded within the gospel is this surprising movement. It's something that people did not understand. It's something that people did not expect. This movement from humiliation to exaltation. Embedded within the gospel is a king who made himself nothing and was obedient to the point of death, yet he has been exalted. He's gone through this humiliation, but he has been exalted. Embedded within the gospel is a storyline that seems to suggest that we will go through exiles and deaths and difficulties and struggles, but because of Jesus, we too will be exalted. Because of Jesus, we too have hope. Because of Jesus, we too have 
a future. We have movement. We have not an end to the story, but perhaps a different chapter to the story. Our present suffering does not negate Jesus' kingship today as Christ the King day. And for some of you, how that does not ring true in your life, the things that you go through, it does not negate that. In fact, in some way, it identifies us with him. In some way, the things that we are walking through, as difficult as they might be, as completely like a lack of understanding as I might have about them, I believe this to be true. It's identifying you with who he is. It's bringing about that solidarity. It's bringing about that experience, that shaping of character that will give birth to hope. I hope that in the light of this narrative, this movement from humiliation to exaltation, that we can begin to see Christ not just as the guy who's up there somewhere out there completely not involved with who you are, but we can see him as the rightful king of everything. The one who is fighting for you, the one who has not given up on you, the one who is working out his plans for you, the one who is involved and invested in you, regardless of what it is that you go through. And hopefully that truth can help us hang on the fact that we're moving from humiliation to exaltation, where we once were marred and disfigured and completely broken, that we're moving into something beautiful and something glorious that can only be brought about through a belief and a trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. I don't know where you guys are. I don't know how hopeless you might be. I am certain that Christ is king, and my prayer for all of us is that that would become so true and so evident that we can't deny it any longer. I hope that wherever you are, you find love, you find mercy, you find grace, and you find peace that's only available through the kingship of Jesus.